wonderful worship today. Well, we do want to mention that uh, Maria is here with the newest member of our church, Miss Lily over here. So, congrats. Be sure to say hello. I'll try not to scream as I preach and wake her up. She'll sleep right through it. Great. Excellent. Ah. So will Bob. Yes. I think I've, I've told you guys a story. I used to, uh, my, when I used to work at San Jose Christian College, and I, I was going back to school there, and they ended up working there. We had a gentleman that, uh, or they had asked me to close up a church. After 40 years, a church was transitioning because the neighborhood had changed. And they were giving their church to a, a different ethnic group because uh, they wanted that building to continue. But they needed somebody to preach for the last six months, so I did. And we had a 94-year-old gentleman um, he was great. He was a sniper in World War II, and he could still shoot like you wouldn't believe. And uh, he, would, uh, uh, he would sit next to the pew, and he would always put his arm up like this on the edge of the pew and listen. And then every so often, he'd be like this, just totally, totally asleep. So I understand. You know, there you go. Oh, well, let's jump into James this morning. Um, last week, we ended up talking at, at the end of James about being friends with the world. And we were talking about how if you're friends with the world, you can't be friends with God. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. You can't slide back and forth. Now, you can try to slide back and forth, but eventually it's going to catch up. You know what I'm saying? It's like trying to slide back and forth between two warring enemies. You know, Think of the Civil War, the North and South, trying to go back and forth. You can't do that. Um, Iran, Iraq, you know, I mean, just two different enemies. It, it, it doesn't work because they're enemies. And then James, uh, James 4, um, verse 4, it starts out and says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, or enmity with, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? The scriptures talk about our relationship with God as being a marriage to God. And the Jewish world and the Jewish way of thinking, uh, it begins with a promise of marriage. And it's not just like an engagement that we have, you know. Uh, somebody gives somebody else a ring and they're engaged. Uh, why is it always the man giving the woman the ring and the woman has to wear the ring but the man doesn't? I don't know. I, I don't make the rules. But that's just the American culture way of doing things. Maybe different cultures like that. But the Jewish, it was a promise of marriage. But it, but it wasn't just a promise of marriage. At that point, it was a contract. You were considered to be married at that point forward. But you didn't go to be with your husband or your wife for another year at least. There was a whole bunch of things that would happen during that time. They called it the betrothal or betrothal. Lasted about a year. Then you would have the wedding ceremony. Now, as Christians, we have the same thing that's binding us with Christ. It's a contract that we have once we become Christians. We are committing to him. And, it, and this, this contract is going to last. We're in that, that first phase until what we call the wedding feast, when Jesus actually returns. And then we are to be married to him. But we are considered married to him. I know it's really weird, guys, but just go with it, okay? For the guys. For the gals, they understand this contract. 
concept, okay? But for the guys being married, you know, you know what I'm saying. But, but that will, we're, we're supposed to stay faithful to God during this time. So let's not cheat on him. We are in a covenant to him. So if we fall in love with the world, we're committing adultery to God. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't love some things of the world. I mean, certainly if you're married, you, loved your, uh, you love your spouse, right? I mean, if you have children, you love your children. Even when they act up or act out or anything like that, you still love them. I mean, you can love things like Hawaii, right? You know, Diet Coke, other things. Okay, maybe not love Diet Coke, but you understand but that love cannot be greater than the love that we have for our Lord and Savior and what he did on the cross for us. We live in a system that is against God. Have you noticed this anything? I, I've seen this a lot lately. Self-centeredness. Self-glory. Self-indulgences. Self-satisfaction. It's all about self in this world. This all amounts to hostility to God. John says the same things in, in 1 John 2. He says, 1 John 2, 15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. And we talked about that last week. That's that worldly wisdom. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. James is not talking about, you know, backslidden Christian or, or a carnal Christian. He is saying those who want, those who desire to be friends with the world, James is talking about the ones choosing one over the other, not struggling, just giving yourself completely over because we cannot say, serve both God and the world at the same time. That is impossible. This is like saying that a husband will not mind if a wife has a man on the side or vice versa. That doesn't work, does it? No. It doesn't work out for the marriage. It doesn't work out for God either. James has mostly been talking to carnal Christians, saying, you need to grow up. You need to move forward. You need to stop acting like children. And we could come up with hundreds of examples of adults acting like children, right? Ever so often, James directs his comments to those who think they're Christians but, but are not. Most of the time, he's talking to carnal Christians, saying grow up, but sometimes he's, he's going to those that are going, you may think you're a Christian, you may be, you know, but, but being friends with the world is not just being carnal. It's deciding to be against God. James is not saying people have lost their salvation. If you are a Christian, you are not losing your salvation. But there are those who think they are Christians and nothing in their lives really ever say that they are Christians by the way they act. And they are warned to look at their lives and to turn to God for salvation. So it's either God or the world. Now, how do you know if you're friends with God or the world? By your fruit. And we talked about that several weeks. You need to go back online and, and listen to that. That's, you know, go back, it's there. 
but by your fruit. James says that God is a jealous God. The Spirit lives in us, and he pivots back to to Christians. Verse 5, he says, Or do you think scriptures say without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? When we become Christians, the Spirit of God dwells in us. And God, when we go toward the world, when we become carnal Christians, God is is longing, he's jealous, he wants to connect with you through the Spirit that is in you. James knows that true believers can be enamored by this world. Can we be enamored by this world? Can we be enticed by this world? Oh yeah, there's all sorts of things. This is called the enticement of Satan. The Spirit of God counteracts this, and this is called our godly conscience. This is that, that little voice in, in my head that says, Alan, Al, whoa, 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 Alan, what, what, what are you doing? Alan, Alan, th- this is not, Alan, this is sin, what, what are you doing? And it's that thing that we take and we like to shove back down in, in the very back of our brain, right? Because it makes us confront our sin. But when it comes out and says, what are you doing? We have a chance. We have a choice to decide, am I going to sin here or not? James is appealing to us to make a clean break from this world before the actual marriage ceremony. Be totally in love with Christ as the bridegroom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he's basically saying the same thing. He says, uh, 2.12, what, what, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept these things or the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. And cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the classic wisdom of God versus wisdom of the world and it's based all these things that are not of God are based on worldly wisdom and they cannot understand where you as a Christian are coming from they just shake their heads and they just they don't get it why do they not get it because they're coming from a worldly standpoint the things of God that this world does not understand and will not understand unless they come to the knowledge of God and I'm not talking about some, ooh, let me give you the secret knowledge. No, this, this knowledge is offered freely to the world, and they have a chance to accept it. And God is drawn, it's, it's a mystery of how God does this, but he draws us at the same time as he's giving us the choice to accept it or not, his wisdom. He doesn't hide it from the world, but the world does not want to see it because it's a different wisdom. So we have these contradictions here. Those who have the wisdom of God who are following God and those who have the wisdom of God and who are following the world. 
And we've, we've talked about this, uh, you know, talked about this in the past, but there, there's a third area here. Those who have the wisdom of God and who are not applying it to their lives. This is who James has mainly been talking to, the carnal Christians. You have the knowledge, but you're not applying it. I have knowledge about so many different things in my head. I mean, it's, it's amazing all the, the, the idiotic things that I know about, okay? My, Lisa uh, gave me one time for Christmas uh, the book, what was it called? The, uh, the book about, uh, she's looking at me, and my mind went blank. See, I have so much in my head, I can't even remember stuff anymore, you know? But I mean, I know off-the-wall stuff. But that doesn't mean I need to apply all that off-the-wall stuff into my life. But there's some things, if you have the knowledge about how to fix something and it sets unfixed for years, is your knowledge worth anything? Not really. That's the carnal Christian. You have the knowledge of God, but you're not applying it to your life. And James is encouraging us to apply it. Paul had the same issues with Corinth, and he addressed it with the Corinthians. Um, so, uh, you know, so, so he's basically saying there's hope for us. James 4, 6 says, but he who gives us, or he gives us more grace. Does anybody here need more grace in their life? Hmm. We all do, don't we? We get up and we look in the mirror and we just say, oh, Lord, <laughs> help me. And he gives it to us. That's the amazing thing. He gives us more grace. This is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God doesn't want us trying harder. Anybody tired of trying harder? Oh, man, we can try and try and try. It's not about the trying. It's about the, allowing the Holy Spirit to help us achieve the things of God in our life. It's not about doing it by our own strength. We have tried to do it by our own strength. It is not working. We're not children trying to learn to, to tie our shoes. I mean, I'm so happy Velcro came along. I can get my kids flip-flops with Velcros on them. When they get older and more hand coordination, then they can learn how to tie their shoes, right? But you know, when, especially the teachers here, anybody who's had young kids, you know, you, you, the shoes always come untied, right? And, and you're like, oh, let me help you with that. Because you're thinking, I don't have 30 minutes to watch you tie your shoe, you know? And, and they're like, no, I want to do it. And they try to tie the shoe, and they try to get, try the shoe. Eventually, they take the shoe, and they throw the shoe because they're so frustrated. And you're like, if you would just let me help you. That is us with God. God is saying, let me help you. And I'm like, no, God, I want to tie the shoe. And God's going, come on. I don't, Alan, you need to get going. we got to get out the door. We have stuff to do. But we need to allow the Holy Spirit to help us in this life. We need the help. We need to stop trying to do it on our own strength. God opposes the proud. Oppose means, in this context, means getting ready to battle against. God opposes the proud. God is the only way that we, you know, to grow. We grow through him and in him. And he gives us grace until we are ready to rely on him. And he gives us more grace and he gives it to us freely. 
supplying us with all the power and the strength that we need and even more grace than what we need. He says in Romans 5.20, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. God loves us so much that grace just keeps coming even when we screw up. You know our God is such a great God, he provides a way of escape for sin. We may be put in a situation and he gives us an out and his grace guides us that way. So let's not reject the grace of God that he has for us. Let me say that again. Let's not reject the grace of God that he has for us. This is how the work of God is done. Through Christ and his grace. You know, it's our own fault if we don't have the grace of God. We don't ask for it. We don't go to him. He's ready to give it to us. And down in verse 10, which we'll look at later, but he says that humility is the key to victory. God's grace, his power, received through humility. That is it. Because we're nothing without him. In the energy of our own strength, We cannot do things for God. They will fail. God wants us to depend on his grace. He does. The devil wants us to to rely on ourselves. But when we are weak, we are strong because of God. Because God blesses us when we rely on him. And like I said, the devil wants us to rely on ourselves, our pride. He is, he is out to, to, you know, to trick us to depend on ourselves. Our responsibility is to keep a place of humility and to submit our lives to God and what he says and what he teaches. In fact, in verse 7, he says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is a famous verse. We all know it, right? If you've grown up in church at all, you've heard this verse over and over throughout the years. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. To become a mature Christian. We must take, you know, uh, take this seriously. The fight to the enemy. We, We have to take that fight to the enemy. The devil, this world, and the flesh... Because maturity and victory go hand in hand. You have, to, you, know, you have to fight the enemy through the help of God, and you cannot make a treaty with this world. If you make a treaty with this world in certain areas of your life, you're good, you know, you're really fighting against the world in this part of my life, but this little life, I've just kind of made this treaty with the world. That, that is not going to work out because that is where the devil attacks. That is where he gets the foothold. And then he eventually drags you completely back into the world. This is why, you know, God said in the Old Testament, I don't know if you remember the Amalekites, uh, they they represent a a type of flesh. Um, They were the ones that attacked the Israelites uh, as they were coming out of Egypt. They attacked the the weak and those that were slow and the older and the, you know, those that had ailments and all that. In the very back of the line, as the Israelites were going out into the deserts, the Amalekites would come and attack them and take their stuff and kill them and all that. And God said, you need to come in and you need to kill them completely. And that's what he tells Saul. You need to kill every man, every woman, and every animal that belonged to them. Then what does King Saul do? 
He doesn't do this. And Saul used an excuse. I've saved the best from the Amalekites for you, God. I've saved all the best just for you, God. And God said, enough is enough. You are no longer going to be king. You are going to be replaced. He made a treaty with this world. Now, how did Saul die in the very end? (laughs) At the hands of an Amalekite. The very people that God told him to destroy. Because they're the enemy of God. The spiritual lesson is this. If you don't follow through by the Spirit, if you don't fight the flesh every day by the help of the Spirit, the flesh will rise up and kill you spiritually. This is why God gives us more grace. Because we need more and more and more to fight these battles. It's the only path to victory. And our part in this is to stay humble along the road. And this is how we become mature. It leads others toward Christ when we act this way. And we can't do it on our own strength. Jesus has to live through us. The, The victorious one, Paul says in Galatians 2. Jesus has already won the battle and we need to remember that. He's already fought the battle. He's already won the the battle. He has defeated principalities and powers. He has triumphed over them on the cross. He rose from the dead. He is the victorious one. He has bound the strong one, uh, you know, that the parables call the strong one. The victory is already won by Christ. So if Christ is already victorious, if he's already won these battles, if, if he already lives in me, then all I need to do is kind of get out of the way and let his faith and my faith come together and live through Jesus. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is getting out of the way. The life I now live in in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for its righteousness can be gained through the law. Christ, uh, or if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Jesus Christ lives in us, and yet we seem to forget it. We forget that we have the power within us. And I'm not saying some mumbo-jumbo power. I'm talking about the power of God is in us, and we forget about that. He lives in us. It's a supernatural life because he does that. It's not a life of rehabilitation where we keep saying, I'm sorry. Yes, if you're sorry, confess it. Guess what? He's faithful and just. He forgives us. Then what do we need to do? wallow and beat ourselves up over the sin just sit there and have to feel bad i've got to i've got to punish myself no once we ask for forgiveness and forgiveness is given we get over it we move forward we don't have to punish ourselves anymore why because he already died on the cross for that punishment he already suffered so we don't have to Too many of us are living a life of suffering, and it's because we're not accepting the grace that God has given us. Our old life is dead, and we have a new life. It's something only God can do for us. 
to be born of the Spirit, to be saved. It's a total miracle of God, and only God can raise someone from the dead. That's what happens when we accept our Lord, Lord in Christ, our Savior. We are raised from the dead. We are born again. A non-Christian is living a dead life. The world is living a dead life. And only the saving grace of God can lift them out of that deadness to a new victorious life. Faith releases the power of God into our lives. And this is what happens when he saves us. The power is there and it takes us to new places. Places where we, you know, without the struggle of sinful acts. As long as we allow him to be in control, we can live a victorious life over sin through him. Carnality is living like the world lives. Pride focuses on ourselves. These are two things that that Satan uses to rob us of the victorious life. He wants us to focus on ourselves. We always focus on ourselves, don't we? It's like second nature. Oh, wait, no, it's not second nature. The second nature is God. That's first nature, the nature of this world. What Satan did when he sinned, when he got Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. Sin became our first nature. We need to go with our second nature, which is the nature of God. He knows, Satan knows that when our pride kicks in, it leads to our defeat. James says the best defense is what? It's what every coach says. A good offense, right? Raw, raw, raw. Let's get going, you know? Well, here it is. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The Greek means to to fully place yourself under his authority, to surrender. The mark of carnality is the I can do it. I can do it, I can do it, Lord, let me do it. The mark of carnality is is holding on to that steering wheel instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to drive your life. Now, how is it, can two people drive a car? I mean, at the same time. I know we have some people that try, you know, backseat drivers, you want to call them that, you know? But I'm talking about, can two people have their hand on the wheel at the same time? Well, they can try, but it's not going to last long. Why? Because we all think a little bit differently, don't we? I mean, my wife and I, we're a lot alike in in so many different areas. You do not want to put us on the same team in Pictionary. We understand each other. We understand those weird marks on the paper, okay? We get it. But when it comes to other stuff, we think completely different. If there's two ways to doing something, we're going to do it differently. We're just different. Us and the Holy Spirit, we both cannot drive. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Learning to let go and fully surrender to God takes a lifetime, doesn't it? Yeah, talk to some of these uh, Mature Christians, some of these older Christians. Talk to somebody who's been around that you respect, and they'll tell you it's not a a flip of the switch easy thing. It's a lifetime. But as we do it more often, life becomes enjoyable. Now, I didn't say easier. Okay? 
Don't get me wrong. That's where, that's where the, the blessed teaching kind of goes awry. Because a lot of people teach, you come to God and life is just easier. You're just blessed. Just be blessed. I want to be blessed. Don't you want to be blessed? We all want to be blessed. But that doesn't mean life is easier. But with him in control, it becomes more enjoyable. Because we know, matter, we know that no matter what, we're going to get through it. And the sooner we understand this, we start to mature. We start to mature. Submit yourselves then to God. Giving yourself over. That is the first part. That is a good start, a good beginning. But we have more work to do. We must show good faith by doing our part. And then what? We're to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist. We must start resisting temptation. When temptation shows up at our door, we should not let it in. There's a knock, and we go and open the door, and we say, no, 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 shut the door. You're not coming in here. Then we get to the point where we don't even open the door. We look out the window. Oh, no, 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 that's not coming in here. Then we get to the point where we get a ring doorbell camera. So we can sit in our red chair. Everybody have a red chair? Okay, we can sit in our red chair, and we can go, uh-uh, no, I'm not even going to let them know I'm home. Then we can get a security camera that's even further out that triggers to let us know. And then we, then we like, turn down the lights. Nobody's home at all. Go away. And eventually we put up a gate on our property where he can't even get in. And then he will go away. James doesn't say rebuke the devil and he will flee. He says, resist the devil and he will flee. Many, many Christians have been taught to bind Satan. And I don't mean praying against Satan. We need to pray against Satan. Okay, don't get me wrong. But many people have been taught to bind Satan. In the name of Jesus, I bind you, Satan. I know what they mean and I know what they've been taught. But to me, this is a false teaching. Man cannot bind Satan with our words. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can bind Satan. Only he can bind the enemy. It's not about bind, you know, binding Satan. We need to resist. We need to not even talk to him. Just resist. In 2 Corinthians 12, it says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast, boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. This is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. If the binding of Satan doctrine were biblical for us to do, why didn't Paul do it right there? It would read much different, wouldn't it? The thorn of my flesh to torment me, but guess what? I told that thorn of flesh. I bound that thorn of flesh. I told Satan, I bind you. But we don't see that. 
We don't see him say, I left Satan tied up over there, so you need to pray. No, 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 no. This is because Satan cannot do anything to us unless God allows it. Read the book of Job. God uses the devil to teach us how to be good servants of Christ, how to persevere under pressure, and to conform us to the the image of God. We just need to not submit to the devil. We have, to, we have to resist. Peter says the first thing in, in 1 Peter 5. He says, be alert, of, uh, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You know, the more I traveled... And the, more, the older I get, the more I realize I'm not so unique as I thought I was. The struggles, the pains, the difficulties, the, the, the things that I go through, guess what? Other people have gone through them also. Now, does that make it easier? No. It doesn't make it easier. But it gives me an understanding. The family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings, it says. We are supposed to be resisting. We are commanded to resist. We are never commanded to bind the devil. So we resist by putting on the armor of God, like Ephesians 6 says. Go look it up. So we resist resist the devil, and he flees from us. What does this mean? You know, oftentimes we have this resistance to godly things. For some of us, getting the church is a resistance, isn't it? can be difficult. It seems like every little thing that can get in the way for us getting to church will happen, and we have to persevere through that. We have to resist the temptation not to go, and if we do that often enough, guess what? The devil eventually is going to flee, and he stops trying to stop you from getting to church because he knows, man, I, that, that's not working. i got to stop that. It's not the work, worth the effort anymore. Why? Because you keep going to church, no matter what. I've come to a conclusion. We do what we want to do. Don't we? When it boils down to it, we really do what we want to do. If you don't want to do something, guess what? You don't. That's usually, not, not 100%, but usually. Satan uses this attitude toward us all the time. If a headache keeps you from coming to church, guess what? Seems like every Sunday you're going to end up with a headache. If he sees that the kids acting up causes you to stay home, guess what? Sunday morning your kids are going to act up. If you're tired and you just need rest, guess what? Satan's going to give you a hard week. So on Saturday night, you're going to feel so tired, and on Sunday morning, you're not going to get up. If you don't like somebody and you don't want to be around them, Satan is going to make sure that person is there every Sunday to say hi to you. Good morning. God bless you. I'm so glad you're here today. I mean, I could go on and on, but, but, he, but he is prowling around looking for our weaknesses, and he uses them, so we need to resist. 
resist, resist, and resist some more. I can remember, now Brandon wasn't supposed to be in here, but he's in here anywhere. Uh, anyway, but I can remember um, when Brandon was really young, okay, uh, we, we just did swim lessons with Grayson this past week, week, and Brandon was out there. He doesn't need lessons, but he's just doing the fun stuff that the older kids do. But, uh, you know, we're trying to teach Grayson how to swim, you know, so we're doing the city thing. But I can remember Brandon, and this is before we actually knew he could swim. He just didn't like water at that age on his face, okay? But he was resisting a lot. And at one point, he's clinging to the side of the pool, and he screams out loud, and all, you know, I'm sitting over there and stuff, and, and he screams out loud, he goes, she's trying to kill me! Now, that's resisting, right? He's, he's like, I'm not, no, I'm not doing anything she says, because she's trying to kill me. That's what we need to do to Satan. We need to scream out and say, no, he's trying to kill me. He's trying to take me away from God. And then when we resist, what do we do? We submit ourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's not saying you're not Christians. He's saying get your act together. Get back to God and God's ways. And this is the promise. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Now, this promise doesn't automatically come to us. We have to do our part. We must come near to God. We must go toward God to activate this promise. And this is where we're going to start out with next week. Uh, but uh, I'm going to say a little bit about it now. But people talk about wanting to connect with God. And, you know, I just don't seem to connect with God. Well, I, I you know, I don't find, uh, personally, I don't find that to be true. Because it says right here, if you come near to God, then he will come near to you. Maybe you haven't done your part. You have to be serious about it. It's not a one-time prayer or one-time thought. I mean, when I was dating my wife... I drew near to her, right? I wanted to be around her. I wanted to go to lunch with her. I wanted to go to dinner with her. I wanted to go out and hang out with our friends with her. I didn't like it when I wasn't around her for a while, right? That's drawing near to somebody. And you know what the result was? She drew near to me. She had the same feelings. We eventually had, you know, got married. That's drawing near. So if you want to draw near to God then you want to be near him. You don't like it when you're away from him. You're constantly thinking about him. And the result is, God will draw near to you. And that's where we're going to pick up next week. Why don't you stand and we'll pray and the worship team will finish this up with a song. Lord, I am so thankful that you give us grace. You give us the grace enough to be able to resist the devil. I pray, Lord, that you give us the power. And, and, and well, you've already given us the power. I pray that we understand the power that is within us to resist the devil. Lord, I pray for those that, that want to draw nearer, closer to you. That they set themselves on a path. That they would go towards you. Because I know you'll respond. How do I know that, Lord? Because what you've done in my life and what I've seen you do in so many different people's lives. 
that when they come to you, you go to them. I pray that you give the strength to those who want to come near to you, Lord. Give them the strength to do that, to take those steps. Provide them a way, a way back into relationship with you, a deeper understanding, a deeper relationship, that life would become more enjoyable, not easier, Lord, but more enjoyable because they know that in the end, all things work out for the good of those who love God. You are so precious to us, Lord. Help us realize that. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. May his grace be upon you. May he never turn his face from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.